this is Osatru Academics here. Osatru is the belief in the Norse gods. It's the native Norse religion. Think Vikings, Thor, Odin, etc. The etc is what I talk about. One of the most popular topics I get messaged about is magic. It's either people wanting me to mentor them or do magic for them or critique their rituals or whatever. I don't blame them. Magic is a lot cooler than talking about, say, the differences in Baltic amber compositions and Viking Age artifacts. I started to do a series of posts on different types of Norse magic, and then I realized it was too superficial. Norse magic is such a broad subject, and I don't want to gloss over anything too much, so I'm already sure I'm going to need to do at least two episodes on here to decently discuss each type of Norse magic. So let's cover a bunch of stuff about magic. First off, is magic real? Half of you are probably rightfully skeptical of the topic. The other half of you are super into the idea of magic. So, is magic real? This question is a flawed question. It isn't a simple answer because the correct answer is absolutely yes. And obviously no. You first need to define magic to assess if it exists. So, what is magic? If you're talking about flying broomsticks, saying a spell and levitating stuff, or turning yourself into a cat, that's sadly pure fiction. No one is doing that outside of special effects or a seven-book series. I don't care if you feel like you were lifted up during Light as a Feather, Stiff as a Board. It's Leviosa, not Leviosa. You didn't without someone applying force to lift you. No one is moving stuff with their minds. That's not magic. That's fiction. A lot more people would be getting long-distance slapped if that were possible. I would be dosing those out left and right. It's not just the science teacher and me talking. We all know deep down that the fantasiful idea of magic is just that. Fantasy. A beautiful fantasy. But fantasy nonetheless. That idea of magic is made up and not real. We all understand that it's kind of silly to believe that someone somewhere is doing wildly supernatural stuff even if we wish we were the ones who were doing it. Now, don't write me off as a naysayer of magic and assume I'm just going to bash on it the whole time. Not at all. I know magic is real. I've read enough science that proves its existence, and I have enough anecdotal evidence on top of that to convince me. I'm not going to go on some magic bashing fest here like a highly caffeinated Redditor whose girlfriend just broke up with him. Quite the opposite, in fact. Hollywood-style witches, warlocks, sorcerers, and wizards, and the lot... Stem from a place of Christian fear embedded in most cultures. If you believe that demons can do supernatural things such as fly, change shapes, speak things into existence, whatever, and that people can be controlled by a demon inside of them, it makes logical sense that a human possessed by a supernatural being could have supernatural powers. That's logical. Now, say you see a guy or girl doing something you believe is way outside the limits of what you think are natural. Like, say, blend some random weeds together and drink it to get rid of a rash. The only explanation you can come up with is that it was supernatural. How did they do that supernatural ability? Either studying nature and the science, or obviously the demon inside of them forcing them to cure rashes for evil. Religious zealots tend to see things through their own religious worldview. When the culture and the government were ruled openly by religion, the thought of seeking answers to questions with your religion is always on your mind. It's just in your face. So, that dude or chick curing rashes is being controlled by supernatural forces of either the Abrahamic God or demons. It's easier to torture or murder someone if you don't believe they're fully human. 
If you remove that human element, it removes your empathy towards the victim. The idea of having nature teach you something was and is pretty heretical if you believe that nature is evil and corrupted and just this big bad fallen thing. As Christians started to distance themselves from the history of torture and murders of heretics, the idea of those doing magic started to shift too. They became not just evil monsters serving Satan or weak Christians being controlled by a powerful demon, but that they could be just a regular person with a special ability like a magical book or a family line of genetically magical people once you realize that the other people are just people. There's a lot of conflict that happens when you have to decide that they aren't being controlled by a supernatural being and that something natural must be happening and that they didn't gain that skill or knowledge from demons. So back to the question. Is magic real? Well, you also have to establish is magic supernatural. If it is supernatural, it doesn't have to follow all the laws of science and physics. I can't change the laws of physics. You could just have people flying on brooms or tacos or whatever. You can have people drinking fruit punch and turning into a flying donkey. Since that thankfully wild stuff hasn't happened, because that video would have been everywhere, it must follow the laws of nature. Also, if it is natural, then it exists outside of humans. It's not dependent on humans for existence. This is where another hang-up happens. If it obeys the known laws of science, then it should be scientifically replicatable. That means you can do it over and over and get the same kind of result. It should have the same effect no matter where the experiment or seance or potion or whatever is done. That's a big part of the scientific process. You have to be able to replicate the results to prove it. Turns out that while the generic view of magic is unscientific and unrealistic and completely fiction, Magic has been proven to exist and have replicatable results. You just have to make sure that your definition of magic is accurate. Let's talk about the placebo effect. Most people associate the term placebo as a negative, useless, fake thing. That couldn't be more wrong. The Latin word literally means, I am pleasing. It is a real positive effect and has been tested for centuries. It ironically was first tested by the Catholic Church in the 16th century using fake holy items during exorcisms to test if they were actually possessed people. In 1811, placebo was defined as, quote, any medicine adapted to more please than to benefit the patient. It's kind of belittling, but it doesn't say it doesn't help. And it does on a measurable scale. More and more, placebos were used in medicine not just to test if something was actually wrong or to shut up a complaining patient, but to prove how much better a treatment was than a placebo treatment. They have become commonplace in most trials now because of that. Think of when you got hurt as a kid. Your mom or dad would kiss the hurt spot to make it feel better. Does it help? Absolutely! It works! It feels better! But do kisses themselves have healing effects and should doctors be kissing their car accident patients? No. And you know, it's a true wonderful placebo. You could argue that that kiss gives off a release of dopamine, which does help with pain. And you'd be right. That's a solid placebo. It works. An action and a belief causes a physical improvement. Lips don't produce dopamine. Kisses from just anyone doesn't help. They do only in the right context and have no effect in other contexts. 
That's a placebo. The belief triggers a physical response in line with the desired effect. Why does the placebo effect work? The placebo effect occurs when two conditions are met. One, a treatment or ritual action occurs that has no direct reason to improve the condition. Number two, there is a positive expectation with the treatment or ritual. Basically, you do something and believe it will help. Now, is the placebo effect all in someone's head with no actual change? Nope. Science has proven that there are genuine neurobiological responses in patients, like with the dopamine from the owie kiss. It's a real measurable effect that happens as a result of the parental kiss. Your belief that it will help is what causes it to help. To be considered a true placebo effect, you need a neurobiological effect like decreased pain. So no, it's not all in your head, it's from your head. It's been found that even when people have taken known placebos in trials, they still have notable improvements. A 2014 study published in Science Translational Medicine explored this by testing how people reacted to migraine pain medication. One group took a pill with the drug's name on it. Another took a placebo named placebo. And the third group did nothing. That sounds like my kind of group. The placebo was 50% as effective as the real drug to reduce pain after a migraine attack. Now, that doesn't mean the drug was ineffective. The researchers even pointed out that this shows the efficacy of the placebo effect. The main researcher says, quote, People associate the ritual of taking medicine as a positive healing effect, even if they know it's not medicine. The action itself can stimulate the body into thinking the body is being healed, end quote. It means that there is a neurobiological mechanism that exists whereby simply doing a ritual alone with minimal belief, the brain can be tricked into healing itself to an extent. The researchers go on to say that even practicing self-help methods is another placebo effect. Quote, engaging in the ritual of healthy living, eating right, exercising, yoga, quality social time, meditating, probably provides some of the key ingredients of a placebo effect. The attention and emotional support you give yourself is often not something you can easily measure, but it can help you feel more comfortable in the world and that can go a long way when it comes to healing, end quote. There are other studies done on the placebo effect, but this is the most recent powerful one I've found. Now, if you can believe a pill, smell, oil, shot, whatever, will improve a problem so it does, can the opposite be true? Absolutely. This is called the norcebo effect. Norcebo in Latin literally means I will harm. This is why there's side effects reported with placebo treatments. They believe they can experience insomnia, dry mouth, headaches, and such with the new drug. So they do. Translate that idea to superstition. If I truly believe that a black cat crossing my path would cause bad things to happen to me that day, I'm going to expect and look for bad things. I will treat today like it will be a bad day instead of being excited that there was a cute kitty that I got to see today or take home to my horde of other black kitties. I will have a bad day because I said it will be. My perception of the day has already changed. My reactions can cause bad experiences. I will expect and even fulfill a bad time. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Just like most of us know someone with a perceived allergy or sensitivity to something. I'm not saying you go around disrespecting real or perceived issues like that. Always do. Always respect them regardless. 
That stuff is serious, and you don't need to go around being the allergy police. But many of us have seen something like someone complain how they can't have a bagel for breakfast because of the gluten bloating them, but then down three beers at dinner time. They probably don't know about the gluten in the beers, so they have no problems. They believe it causes problems, so they experience problems. They'll have issues buttoning their jeans if they have a bagel, but no issues with the beers. Trying to prove to them that gluten isn't the problem usually doesn't help because it's the belief that's causing the problem, not the gluten anyway. Trying to overcome a nocebo effect isn't a simple click on and off. They might already know it already, but it still occurs to them on a subconscious level. So they just found it simpler to avoid the bagels. What do you do? Nothing. It's more bagels for you. Always rejoice at more bagels. And trying to convince someone causes them to defend and recall experiences. It causes them to have a stronger belief rather than the opposite. When the brain forgets a problem it's causing, it won't be one anymore. Bringing it up does not help with forgetting. And just leave people to their dietary stuff. It doesn't hurt you that you get more bagels for yourself. Rejoice at the bagel bounty. Don't try to fix everyone. Don't be that guy. Learn to let people be if they aren't hurting someone else. We have several food allergies in our household, and I've had my fill already of people trying to help fix them by proving they aren't real. It's resulted in a lot of rashes, clogged toilets, and a very cranky mama. So don't be that guy. Enjoy the extra bagels instead. So anyways, the placebo effect is a scientifically proven occurrence. And guess what? The placebo effect is magic. What is magic? Well, it's doing an action or ritual and expecting a good, reasonable improvement. It works less or not at all if you don't believe it will work. The ritual causes your belief to be stronger. It isn't the ritual that does it per se. The more care you put into the ritual, the stronger your belief can be. Science works off formulas like recipes. Magic doesn't. I'm not saying you can fly if you wish hard enough. I mean, you can fly off your rooftop. It's the landing that's the problem. You'll fly if you jump off. You're just going to land a lot sooner than you expected. Placebos don't cure fatal illnesses. They don't reverse heart disease overnight. The results are reasonable improvement. They're realistic. Same with real magic. It doesn't cure fatal illnesses or reverse heart disease overnight. It isn't realistic. Magic has gotten the rap that it is this over-the-top, supernatural, no-limits thing. That, by definition, can't be natural. You can't have supernatural and natural. It breaks natural laws. Human beings are bound by natural laws while in their natural bodies. As for after our bodies die, I don't know for certain. I'm not dead. But the lore says our ancestors can influence more than people in human bodies can. The stories tell how they can do magic to help fish come into nets, enemies to make mistakes in battles, and sleepless nights for people we don't like. As for gods and goddesses doing magic, their rules are obviously different since they exist in a different form and with different natural abilities than us. So let's start into the many types of Norse magic. There was so much to talk about with each of the different types, which, pun intended, which is why I already know it's going to be more than one episode. Every magical practice has either the purpose of causing a change or gaining information of the future. So overall, I'm going to be covering enchanting and symbols, Dream magic, cursing, spell casting or galdra, runes, potions, blood magic, and finally, 
Sather. In this episode, I'm going to be covering enchanting, dream magic, and cursing. Then I'll cover the others later. So first, I grouped enchanting and symbols because they're basically the same thing, just with a different target. Enchanting means to put a spell into a thing, such as an item. That can also work with symbols. A spell is an action by which a result is brought about. It's doing an action to an item or symbol and expecting a result. Symbols are just a marking that's enchanted. The markings don't exactly hold the magic in themselves if they have no meaning. I'm sure I probably ticked off a bunch of people saying that, but I'm going to repeat it again so you could take a chill pill, placebo pill. So listen carefully. The markings themselves in the symbols don't exactly hold the magic if they have no meaning. By its very definition, a spell requires an action and intent to be a spell. They require intent and belief to function. Otherwise, they're just a doodle or a scratch into something. To enchant is to imbibe it with your intended purpose. So symbols. Think of words. The ink you write them in doesn't have any special properties to conjure mental images. The paper you write them on doesn't either. But if you put the ink on the paper in a certain exact way, you make a letter. If you make several more special markings, you make a word. That combination of markings can conjure feelings, images, memories. That's because words are symbols. They represent something else. An incomplete circle, a triangle with its floor raised, and two bisecting lines seems like nonsense. It could just be a doodle. Or it could be C-A-T, cat. The word cat doesn't look anything like a cat. But we all agreed that that marking means cat. Looking at the word cat creates a mental picture of one and memories of ones from your life. That's pretty powerful, and it's only a mundane use. Writing or saying words is mental conjuring. We're going to dive more into that when we get to runes, but we're just focusing on symbols. If you put personal meaning and belief into a symbol, it can do more than even pulling up mental pictures or memories. It can cause the placebo effect. Harnessing and manipulating that effect to your own purpose is being a practitioner of magic. When I get sick, sometimes I write or paint a symbol on where I feel like it would do the most good. I sit quietly for a few, focusing on solely what to draw. I think about what's been used historically. I think about what's helped me before. I think about what symbols am I comfortable and how much I know about them. Then I think about placement. I think about where with no distractions around. And with all our animals and kiddos here, it takes work to set up quiet time. I think about where that symbol will work the best and why. I have to be able to explain to myself why this is the best symbol and the best place for this exact moment. One place will stand out and I will justify to myself why it's the best. Then I write it fully believing it will help. I write it solemnly, purposefully, and seriously. I don't just slap a doodle willy-nilly and expect it to do all the work. I take it seriously. I make it work for me. I think throughout the day and the following days about it. I think about it helping me get better, faster. I think about all the reasons why it's the best symbol and the best placement. It works every time for me because of the work I put into it. I've researched beforehand previous people's symbols and practices. I've sacrificed that time learning about those symbols and their history instead of doing other things. 
I take care in the ritual of it. That's what gives the results. What you put into something magical is what you get back. Weak effort gives weak or no results. The bigger the care and act, the bigger the result. As for items that are enchanted like a charm, the intent and purpose is to put hope for a result into the item itself rather than a marking. An item can be infused with a positive purpose. It can be a charm, even a lucky charm. They're always after me lucky charms. You can impart a positive expectation into an object itself rather than a marking. Like having like your favorite lucky shirt you always wear to exams or whatever. Many pre-Christian artifacts have phrases carved into them that are obviously magical. Like saying, tear, protect. But some artifacts have a more cryptic nature. We can't figure out what they mean. They don't tell a story. They aren't names. They just seem like nonsense. But in their context, they're clearly an enchantment. A common ancient magical word is alu. Eleven bracetes, which are pendants have been found with alu inscribed on them. Alu has been found on rune stones, axe shafts, amulets, urns, and even arrows. Alu's meaning is very disputed and every interpretation by scholars varies widely. The common element in all of the alu items is that in the different context, each was meant to help protect the keeper of the enchanted items based on the surrounding words or runes. Now, I can't talk about Norse magical symbols without getting to the super popular Helm of Awe, also known as Aishjalmar. Aishjalmar means Helmet of Agir. Now, a good amount of you are going to turn this podcast off before I even finish it. This is certain to cause some people with tattoos and hoodies to be upset. That's okay because it's better to be incorrect and know it than to be oblivious. Every person should rejoice when they learn they are incorrect. That means you can now be more perfect and better. The Helm of Awe is being used outside historical uses like nobody's business. It's on hoodies. It's on necklaces. It's on books. It's everywhere it could be. Except where it's intended to be. Most people equate it with the two references in the Poetic Edda. Fafnir the dragon, while dying, says he carries a helmet of the Frightener while guarding his horde. It's referenced to as an actual helmet, not a symbol. Now, it might have had it on there, but nowhere does it say there's stuff on the helmet. The symbol that looks like the sea urchin made out of forks comes from a much later mid-16th century spellbook. It says very clearly and precisely to print the symbol on your forehead when you expect to meet an enemy to help you frighten them. I'm going to say that again. It says to put it on your forehead to scare your enemies. There are three other manuscripts that have symbols that are similar in name and purpose, but are slightly older. Those three are encrusted with Christianity, though, even in the spells themselves. Now, you are more than free to have the symbol on anything you want. Tattoo it on your butt if you want. Whatever makes you happy. However, you are not using it as it was directed in a spell book unless you put it on your forehead. That's not important unless you're claiming to be using it historically. And I really don't think you should tattoo it on your forehead. I am definitely not telling you to tattoo it on your forehead to be historically accurate. But you would most certainly ward off nearly everyone with a face tattoo, including employers and potential dates. Just enjoy it for the cool drawing with the great history behind it. Put it on whatever. Just know you're tweaking a little bit. And that's fine because we already learned that the symbol itself doesn't hold the magic. It's the intent and the purpose behind it. This certainly is not an exhaustive discussion into Norse symbols and enchantments. There are so many! 
but it's a general overview for you to understand what the workings are. The one reason I'm cautious about being too specific or detailed in any one of the types of Norse magic is because it's like teaching someone how to do a bench press properly or how to cut wood or how to cook spinach properly. It alters the way of their life ever so slightly. It also causes a small touch in the web of fates. I'm already touching my thread of fate with yours by teaching you through the podcast. If you turned around and used magic willy-nilly and shot your luck into the ground, I would actually be part of that. I helped you do that. Another reason I'm kind of general in what I talk about with the magic types is because I don't want to rob someone of the power behind the sacrifice of learning for yourself. It's a sacrifice reading and absorbing and taking notes on the topic that adds a kick behind your actions. I have no issue giving solid historical sources to those who want to know more, but magic is deeply personal. That's why learning for yourselves assimilates it into who you actually are. There isn't a recipe for rituals. I don't want to skew your own creative process by risking you just following what others have done. And hopefully you do everything with an extreme amount of respect. The next type of Norse magic I'm going to talk about is oniromancy. If you've never played Witcher, you probably have never heard that wacky word. So what the heck is oniromancy? It's the foretelling of the future through dreams. It wasn't unique to the Norse people since it's been going on since at least 3100 BCE. The second oldest text ever found has a record of it. It's in nearly every religion and culture. It is an ancient and persistent belief in many cultures that dreams can have omens, give advice, or tell the future. The sagas have tons of instances of people having dreams, foretelling the future in cryptic ways, or getting messages from dead family members. The poetic and prose Edda have prophetic dreams. I mean, there's Baldur's dream. That's literally in the title. So yeah, the Norse people knew the difference between regular dreams called Dromsrok and important prophetic ones. There's even a goddess who works with dreams, Njorum. She's mentioned 11 times in the lore and in many Scandinavian place names. Now, I never want to get in the habit of combining deities in a polytheistic religion for simplicity or because there isn't much remaining about them. I don't want to jump to conclusions about a deity. But on the other hand, since most of the text we have is heavily poetic, we can't assume every name we are given is a unique, separate entity. There are kennings all over the place. Based on etymology, the study of how words evolve from previous words, I personally believe Njorum is Nerthas, the earth goddess, and the twin sister slash wife of Njorthur. That would make her the mother of Frey and Freya. It makes perfect cohesive sense to me that since the Vanier family is very magical and has twins. So to take a detour from some of the nice and fuzzy types of Norse magic, let's talk about curses. Curse you, Squidward! Cursing. We see a lot of curses in the sagas. They can range from simply voicing something bad you wish to happen to someone to creating a decapitated horse pole to cause harm. More on that creepy thing later. Items or people can be cursed. Simple curses with the intent of something bad to happen were not shown to be some big, elaborate thing. They were usually just spoken into existence with hope and purpose and hate. A ritual usually didn't take place. 
They would just say to the person whatever bad thing they wanted to happen to them if they did a specific action. There usually is a choice involved. It's almost like a known consequence or that there's like a contract that starts with a curse. This and this bad thing will happen if you do this thing. It makes it a choice. For instance, the cursed ring in the saga of the Volsungs, the last thing of the dwarf's hoard that Loki was taking, he tells Loki that anyone who owns this ring will die. Loki still chooses to take it. It went badly for every owner after, but it's almost like an oath. You do this and this will be result. There was also a sword called Tyrfinger. It was cursed to do two terrible killings and never could be drawn without killing someone. That was accomplished by simply saying it with intent. Now, I'm not saying you can simply go around just telling people off and they eat worms and literally die. That's a surefire way to unemployment. But there is power in your words. Saying something out loud is different than thinking it. It goes into the memories of those who heard it and yours. When you say something, you hear it through your ears as well. Your ancestors can hear it. The gods and goddesses can hear it. It makes your will known. I personally do not have a lot of experiences with cursing people, and I've never cursed an item. I've owned a cursed item, and that was a crap time. I mean, I have a lot of experience using cursed words, quite fluent at this point, but I only have cursed two people in my life. And based on what I've heard is going on in their lives, well, what went on in one of their lives since now one of them is dead? It had the desired effect. So there's clearly something very strong to it. It affects your family luck to do a curse. So I wouldn't run around throwing out curses left and right. It will literally affect you and all of your family. So to wrap it up, magic is completely made up and fake. And magic is completely real and proven by science depending on which concept of magic you're talking about. Enchanting can be done to an item or a symbol itself. Enchanting is just to put your hopes into a physical item or visual mark. Dreams have been used for centuries on end to gain insight into the future and to communicate with dead loved ones. Hate is a powerful feeling and you can curse easily. However, you tie yourself to that person through your luck so it should be viewed very cautiously. Till next time.